0: Hello, and welcome to the Book Call Podcast,
1: where we read books and talk about them. I'm Vincent Valella. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Vince. I'm Adrian. Adrian Galvin. This is episode 1.0.1. 1. This is a re-record of an original episode, which we felt didn't come up to our standards. So we are going to readdress The Willows, chapter one. This is a 1907 horror short story by Algernon Blackwood. Vince is going to get you going with the first sentence.
0: After leaving Vienna and long before you come to Budapest, the Danube enters a region of singular loneliness and desolation where its waters spread away on all sides, regardless of a main channel. And the country becomes a swamp for miles upon miles covered by a vast sea of low willow bushes. So I I particularly enjoy when I start any any text. I think the first sentence is so important because it, it's the introduction to the book. It's the first thing people interact with and how authors choose what to put in there. I think communicates a
1: lot about the, the tone and the personality of this story. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And one of the things that I notice about this is that it's a preposterous run-on sentence with a bunch of commas, and that is going to be a recurring theme in this book. So <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I, I love this first
0: sentence because it, it gives me a setting. I, I know it's I'm in a place of singular loneliness and desolation. <laughs> Like that, that gives me a feeling. I'm not scared, but I'm
1: uncomfortable. Right. It is, it is very beautiful writing and the imagery is rich. And we're going to see that throughout the book. And covered in a vast sea of low willow bushes. Mm. Delicious. Indeed. And we're going to talk about those willows just a little bit more. Here we go to the book. These willows never attain to the dignity of trees. They have no rigid trunks and they remain humble bushes with rounded tops and soft outline, swaying on slender stems that answer to the least pressure of the wind. Supple as grasses, and so continually shifting that they somehow give the impression that the entire plane is moving and alive. This is great because it's actually a character introduction. In most books, the human beings are the main characters, but in this, many of the primary primary characters are going to be inanimate or objects that we would usually think of as inanimate. So this is the first one of them and it's this collective group of willow bushes and but what's sort of strange is that they're not the normal willow bushes at least to me they're not the normal willow bushes. Usually I think of willows as a fairly large tree Um, the image that I have in my mind is of the single weeping willow on the riverbank, but this sounds a little bit different. So why don't you tell us about that? So I, we talked about this a little before and we're arguing about trees. If you look at the cover of
0: the version of the text we have, there's the, the willow bushes that Adrian's describing, like the large canopies covering and blocking sunlight, but based on the description that, uh, Blackwood gives us in this book, they seem they're like low shrubs. And these are things that I saw a lot in Alaska. So in areas beside rivers where there's not much nutrients or not much sunlight, the trees only can attain a certain height. Like they're just not getting enough to grow larger than that. So these are small bushes They're If you tried to run through them, they would just bounce you back. Like you have to like physically force your way through them. There's usually little like rabbit trails.
1: Um, and they're, they're taller than a man, but not a lot taller. It's interesting because it, it seems like, you know, there's a forest cycle where, pioneer plants sort of take over open space and then larger hardwoods will eventually take over and then those small pioneer plants can't sustain growth so it seems like because they don't grow very high and therefore very wide they all kind of pack in very closely in a way that is more similar to a pioneer plant even though they're a tree i think in
0: terms of they wouldn't be classified as pioneer plants because right. in the area, it's
1: just a nutrient deficit. Right. No, I'm not saying they're pioneer plants. I'm just saying the way they're like packed in, they're behaving is like more it. is more similar. And by packing in densely too? It prevents the wind from coming in.
0: Right. So it's beneficial for the plants on the inside.
1: Uh, nice. Awesome. So we're going to move on to enough here about... on the <laughs> biology of trees. <laughs> trees are wonderful. Um, so here we go. Happy to slip beyond the control of the stern banks, the Danube here, Wanders about at will among the intricate network of channels intersecting the islands everywhere with broad avenues down which the waters pour with a shouting sound. So I, we should just give a quick introduction because he's not going to get to it for a couple pages, but there's two men and they're on a canoe trip together, essentially. And this is the river that they're canoeing on. I don't think I don't see it as like a fun canoe trip. Like they're like doing some exploring
0: or they're not like doing this for fun. I don't get the impression. Do you?
1: Hmm. I don't know.
0: I get get the impression this is like a job. Like someone's like, hey, go figure out where this river goes or go get to this place. Hmm. It seems like
1: they're working. It doesn't seem like they're just like doing this for fun. I'm not sure what they're doing, but it is interesting that it's never really explained. They just they mentioned that they do this a lot and that he doesn't seem to have any other professional commitments (laughs) but then it's just sort of left blank he's like a generalized explorer yeah you get the impression that their professional skills lie
0: in exploring right i think that's fair why don't you tell
1: us about the danube
0: the danube so the first time we recorded this podcast we did not know anything about the danube river and we received some harsh criticism from more than one individual about not knowing things about it one of them being my mother um thanks mom so i felt inclined to figure out what was going on in this river and it's really interesting actually the the way it was described in some of the article articles I was reading is it's like the Nile of Europe or like the Tigris mm-hmm. and Euphrates. So this is a main channel that runs from the West side of Germany, the whole way to the black sea. So it just sh- cuts the whole way across Europe. Mm-hmm. It's so large that, um, ocean line, like ocean freight liners can go up it. Wow. Um, and there is an area where it's a huge swamp. Mm. Um, and that's significant because that's the part they're at in the book. Got it.
1: Um, so that's a real place. Like we, we could go there if we wanted. Hmm. It sounds like there's a lot of, um, sort of variation in the landscape that it goes through. And actually he talks about that a little bit in the book.
0: There's a lot of commerce and trade. Um, another significant fact Mm -hmm. about this, um, story to keep in mind is since it was written in 1907, um, this is five years before world war one. Hmm. Um, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was allied with Germany mm-hmm. against the rest of the powers of Europe. Mm. Um, so I think we're going to see lots of mentions of Hungar- Hungarians. Yeah. I think that might be significant later. Interesting.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to consider because Blackwood is pretty. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure he is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In that case, this makes sense that he's kind of exploring territory in what will be their enemy i mean it was kind of clear like how things were forming up mm-hmm. um i mean to a certain degree obviously maybe not but uh, yeah anyway back so, to the good. story so we're gonna hear a little bit about that variation in scenery that vince was talking about here we go back to the book the change came suddenly as when a series of bioscope pictures snaps down on the streets of a town and shifts without warning into the scenery of lake and forest This is cool because Bioscope is a name for a camera from that era. So he's actually talking about a film cut between two different scenes, which I think for 1907 is quite interesting. And it goes along with the theme of there being very rich visual imagery that's described in words here. Do you
0: think this would be akin to an author today, like tossing in VR into their story? Hmm. Like a horror story Maybe. that involves like VR. Like yeah, I think finale. talking
1: about like an immersion or sort of like unearthly immersion is what someone would talk about now, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a similar thing. He's drawing on what is impactful technology of the time to help you understand the imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. So let's
0: jump to my favorite character in this whole story. Right on. So there's a protagonist and then there's his friend. Right. And the protagonist is told from the protagonist's point of view, but then he's also with this gentleman. I lay by his side, happy and peaceful in the bath of the elements, water, wind, sand, and a great fire of the sun, thinking of the long journey that lay behind us and the great stretch before us to the Black Sea and how lucky I was to have such a delightful and charming traveling companion as my friend, the the Swede. Swede. The, Swede, the Swede's amazing. Um, he's this stalwart explorer who the, the narrator, the author, the protagonist um, really holds in high regard. Mm. And he, he d- it seems like he's very skilled. He knows what's going on. Yet, if we take ourselves up out of the story a little bit, I think the, the Swede is almost a uh, canary. Canary. Um, people watch, they were watching what happens to this week. And as we know, this skilled person is experiencing the events where that will unfold in this story. He's the barometer for when things go bad.
1: Yeah. I think he is used by the author as a foil, um, and as a narrative device to help you understand how frightening or unearthly something is because you imagine someone who's deeply competent having problems. And I think that goes along with something you mentioned in one of our discussions, which is that they're not named um which helps you to put yourself into the story because like you can't externalize them. that to another name yeah i
0: don't think i'm the swede i think i'm the protagonist when i read this right um which is similar in a lot of other media like in a lot of video games and a lot of mm-hmm. books
1: um you put yourself into like this a lot of video
0: of games for example fossil. there'll be like the third person ones but then there's also the first person ones and usually the characters aren't named like in skyrim mm. when you're playing you're that person you're
1: their eyes right <laughs> Vince just made a nice little like snail eye stalk gesture for all of (laughs) you who are watching. It was really nice. So we're gonna hop in and hear about the river a little bit more. Back to the book. Sleepy at first, but later developing violent desires as it became conscious of its deep soul. It rolled like some huge fluid being through all the countries we had passed, holding our little craft on its mighty shoulders. Playing roughly with us sometimes, yet always friendly and well-meaning. Till at length, we had come inevitably to regard it as a great personage. Great personage is capitalized there. Mm-hmm. So this is cool. Um, he's developing the uh, the river as a character. So we got the, the river, way. we got the willows, we have the Swede,
0: and we have the per- the narrator. Right. So I want to, I want to elaborate a little bit on the river cause he gives, he gives us some, some background. So mm-hmm. we're, we're not, we're not in the river anymore. We're back buying supplies for our, for our journey. And they're talking to someone there. If you were to take a side channel said the Hungarian officer, we met in Pressburg, the Pressburg shop while buying provisions. You may find yourself when the flood subsides. 40 miles from anywhere, high and dry, and you may easily starve. There are no people, no farms, no fishermen. I warn you not to continue. The river, too, is still rising, and this wind will increase. So when I was reading this, this is the second time we've recorded it. This is probably the third time I've read it. Mm -hmm. Um, And going over it, it reminds me about why humans tell stories. Um, and I think one of the reasons why humans share stories is to inform other people. What do you mean by that? So I, I think at one point, like this was a, this is a large river that humans have been traveling in Europe for longer than recorded history. Um, and there's probably some da- it's that's dangerous. It's big. Mm-hmm. Um, and this area, this swampy area that we assume to be very spooky in the book honestly was probably scary and dangerous to people traversing this region so stories like this that were built out of myth um do have some seeding in reality that this area is an area you don't want to get stuck in and people told stories like this that then Algernon Blackwood picked up and physically wrote down like I don't think this is the first time the story's been told I think he's the first person to write it down mm. because the warnings in here seem to just be like hey be careful with the river
1: right Well, it's interesting to consider why mythology exists and what truth is. That was a a, great question. Yeah. (laughs) What is truth? What is truth? Um, Find it here on the book called podcast. (laughs) Because I think there's scientific truth um, that you can measure, but then there is a functional or metaphorical truth, um, which helps you determine experientially how you should behave in the moment. And we're going to hear a little bit. They have a sort of derision for the Hungarian people and what they see, what the main character sees as their superstition. But essentially, they have a networked mythology of stories that helps them behave appropriately. And so those stories are not. Well, actually, they kind of are in this book factually true, but they could be factually false, but they play the same role, Mm -hmm. which is that they. They give a warning. Exactly. They allow people to maintain this cultural knowledge that this is not a safe place. Talking about not a safe place. Um, so they're they're
0: going. They're going down the river. Um, they've landed on an island full of willows. Right. And so they're completely surrounded. The river's on both sides. And let's hop in here. Midway in my delight of the wild beauty, there crept unbidden and unexplained a curious feeling of disquietude and almost alarm. A rising river perhaps always suggests something of the ominous. Many of the little islands I saw before me would probably have been swept away by morning. Mm -hmm. This restlessness, thundering flood of water touched the sense of awe. And so I think this is a theme we're going to see over and over again. I think it's really important to hit on that, Algernon Blackwood, is there's a fuse on this story. Did you notice that when you were reading that you felt like there was a, a hurried pace?
1: Yeah. And he actually mentions it on the page before. Um, the ground seemed to shake with the shock and rush, while the furious movement of the willow bushes, as the wind poured over them, increased the curious illusion that the island itself actually moved. And so what you mentioned before is that the river is slowly consuming the island they're on. And so they, they're pressured because they land on this Island and eventually they have to get off because the whole place will be destroyed. And so that time pressure moves the story along and moves the narrative along. And you're constantly aware of, yeah, like you said, a sort of ticking time bomb or a fuse.
0: It moves the story. So it creates momentum, but then it's also, it's scary. Like, would you like to be on this place? Like, imagine sitting there and your feet's in the sand. And you just see the thing your camp's on. Like, oh, like, oh, crap. Mm. This might not be here in a day or two.
1: Mm. Definitely. I wouldn't like that. No, it sounds bad. <laughs> and there's also some other negative emotions attached to this place. Here we go back to the book. By my emotion... So far as, oh man, we're going to restart. But my emotion, so far as I could understand it, seemed to attach itself more particularly to the willow bushes, to these acres and acres of willows crowding so thickly growing there, swarming everywhere the eye could reach, pressing upon the river as though to suffocate it, standing in dense array, mile after mile beneath the sky, watching, waiting and listening and apart quite from the elements the willows connected themselves subtly with my malaise attacking the mind insidiously somehow by reason of their vast numbers and contriving in some way or other to represent to the imagination a new and mighty power a power moreover not altogether friendly to us there's a lot of things in there one of them is that he's connecting his emotion directly to the Willows, um, not just to the ominousness of the place. The other thing is that he mentions it's a power not altogether friendly to us, which is sort of a strange turn of phrase. What do you think about that?
0: I, I always feel... Do you ever play that game? Do you ever, you were, first of all, do you ever watch Seinfeld? No. Okay. In one episode of Seinfeld, Jerry is explaining to his, his partner... Um, for the night, um, how he plays this game mm-hmm. where he tries to see if he can unlock his door before the murderer, I'm making air quotes, the murderer gets him. Yes. Um, and then as, when I watched it as a kid, that's a game I play now. Like, so sometimes if I'm alone at night, I'll like pretend there's someone behind me and like try to like get in my apartment real quick. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and even though I know it's not real, I still have that feeling of like, this is an unwelcome place. Like I need to get to the safe place. Uh, okay. Um um, so it's self-created. Yeah. It's completely self-created. There's no, I'm in no danger that I'm aware of. Um, But then I think this, that feeling is something humans experience sometimes, whether it's self-created or not. Hmm. So I think by saying it's an unfriendly place, he is tapping into something that everyone has experienced about certain
1: places. Oh, I see. Yeah. Got it. Well, I think it it must've been an evolutionary advantage for us to have this propensity to be afraid of things that we don't know because oh, yeah. it's better to be frequently afraid and be wrong than to be unafraid and then be unprepared for a situation where you should have been afraid, which talking about fear. Mm. We need to talk about the
0: trees again. Okay. Is that, I don't understand completely why Blackwood chooses trees as the fundamental focus of fear in the story. Right. Um, and I know there was some, I think M. Night Shyamalan did a movie mm. on, ah, oh, what's it called? On trees. I have no idea. <laughs> like the, tree, the trees are basically the bad guy. Okay. And they're like scary and they trick people into like murdering each other. Awesome. Um, but is that like a challenge as a fantasy writer to make trees scary?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's
0: a trope. I,
1: like, oh, like, look how good I am. I can make trees scary. Mm. It's interesting to consider because, so if you're out in the forest, And you're looking up at the sky, and then you see these sort of like dark trees silhouetted there. And maybe it's windy, and there's sort Mm -hmm. of like creepy sounds creeping around. Um, I experience fear like connected to trees just on my own, but I'm not sure if these are bushes. (laughs) Nice, I'm not sure if that's because I've been primed by Mm. like having seen a lot of horror and read horror short stories or if it's because it's something that I'm afraid of and that they're tapping into that fear or if it's co-created, I'm not really sure what that dynamic is, but it's, it's a real dynamic for sure. I think uh, in the forest, it's also easier for people to attack you.
0: Like on a, imagine sure. you're like, you just started walking upright. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't mean you're a baby. I mean like evolutionary wise, just got out of bed, started walking. Upright. <laughs> um, like if you're on the Savannah, you can like see predators from further away. Um, But in bushes and trees, like, Mm. you you can conceal things. So Mm. maybe that's it. Maybe that's, like, that source of of ambush. I don't know. Anyway. Got it. let's hop back in here. Yeah, Um, so they're
1: actually about to see something that freaks them out a little bit. Oh, man. They've camped down for the night, and then the main character hears the resilient and tough Swede calling to him, quote, what in the world's this? I heard him cry again, and this time his voice had become serious. I ran up quickly and joined him on the bank. He was looking over the river, pointing at something in the water. Good heavens, it's a man's body, he cried excitedly. Look, a black thing turning over and over in the foaming waves swept rapidly past. An otter by Gad, we explained in the same breath, laughing. It was an otter, alive and out on the hunt yet it had looked exactly like the body of a drowned man turning helplessly in the current. This is quite a key passage. And it, it seems at the time like it's a false alarm, but we don't know yet.
0: It It's weird. I There's this sense of compression that I've noticed since we've been working on a lot of horror stories. There's a sense of compression where there's a situation that's very stressful, and then that... It relaxes, mm-hmm. like it's okay again, um, and we're going to see that the whole way through this book because we already finished it. We know, right. um, but I, I've seen that in a lot of other stories and a lot of other like media. I've just like had the pleasure of consuming mm-hmm. um, that it it's compression, compression. Oh, it's tight. It's scary. Oh, relax. Oh, it's okay. It's just an otter. Right. Um. Oh, the 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 island's scary. Uh, but we'll just camp here.
1: We'll be fine. Right. Well, I think there's this there's the same thing in orchestral music. So at the end of a phrase, often there will be a dissonant chord, which is stretched by the entire orchestra, and then it resolves Hmm. into a more harmonious chord. So there's something fundamentally for us about that tension, that sort of suspended tension in a place that we don't like, and then a release into something beautiful, which is used across media universally in human arts.
0: (laughs) Rather than apply something pleasant, we like something unpleasant to be applied
1: first. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that really speaks to our need to see things in contrast, right? We can't understand things like just singularly. Mm -hmm. We understand things through relative comparison. Talking
0: about understanding
1: things, Mm -hmm.
0: we need to talk about my, mm, he's my favorite supporting character.
1: Excellent. Tell us about it. Actually, I'm going to tell you about him. (laughs) So into the book. It seemed to me that he was gesticulating and making signs at us. His voice came across the water to us, shouting something furiously. But the wind drowned it so that no single word was audible. There was something curious about the whole appearance, man, boat, signs, voice, that made an impression on me out of all proportion to its cause. He's crossing himself, I cried. Look, he's making the sign of the cross i believe you're right said the swede so what happens is they're standing (laughs) on the bank and they see this guy in a canoe paddling down the river not a canoe a flat bottom raft they specifically i think that's
0: also potentially at the time like a canoe would be more expensive Ah. it'd be harder to make a canoe flat bottom rafts are like that's what the lower class that's what hungarians use
1: (laughs) those foolish hungarians um so he's he's paddling by freaking out and making the sound the sign of the cross at them which freaks them out a little bit but they have this kind of derision for him on the next page these hungarians believe in all sorts of rubbish you remember the shopwoman at pressburg warning us that no one ever landed here because it belonged to some sort of beings outside man's world i suppose they believe in fairies and elementals possibly demons too so they just kind of poo-poo him. They're like, "Eh, he's Hungarian. He believes in crazy stuff." The the protagonist poo-poo's him. Mm-hmm. Can't believe I'm using the word
0: poo-poo in a the, prota- <laughs> the protagonist poo-poo's him. Um, but has derision for him. The Swede, <laughs> yes. The knowledge, knowledgeable, stalwart, handsome. They don't actually say if he's handsome. Handsome Swede. They do say he's tan. He is tan. The Swede's tone of voice. So he the protagonist is talking to him and being like, oh, that Hungarian. Mm. This, But the Swede's tone of voice was not convincing, and his manner lacked something that was usually there. Mm. I noted the change instantly while he talked, though without being able to label it precisely. So these guys are friends. They've been friends for a really long time. He notices there's something off about his friend, and he's just maybe making errors. Right. To go along with the story like Mm -hmm. this the story that they're talking about in the book
1: right well it's interesting that they both have this propensity for not acknowledging what's happening so the protagonist is still in the thick of it where he doesn't believe and he's saying that he doesn't believe but the swede has a sort of premonition and you can hear it in his tone of voice and yet he's compelled to keep pretending in this moment, yeah. and we're going to see that sort of confidence and facade erode over this whole chapter. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, little filler here. What's going on? Um, the narrator is talking about how much he loves the Swede, how stolid he is, and how comforting. But while they're setting up their camp and collecting firewood, the river is still rising as if flowing out of some thoughts of its own. Ooh, personifying mm-hmm. and dropping his load with a grasp. The island will be underwater in two days if this goes on, said the Swede. I wish the wind would go down, I said. I don't care a fig for the river. So it's interesting. I I, what was, I was reading something about sailors the other day. Mm-hmm. And I realized that sailors don't like the ocean. Like in general, during this time period, sailors couldn't swim. Right. The ocean's scary and has storms. They don't like it. I don't, I suspect that these explorers do not like the river. Like hmm. in general, the river is a dangerous thing. It's just the quickest way.
1: You know, I wonder about that because his description of it is quite extensive. And I think, I think there's fear. Like I think they respect its power, but they describe it as a great personage, and we didn't go through all of it. But But great doesn't necessarily mean they like it. No, but I don't. I don't think it's fair to say that they just like straight up dislike the river. He, their whole passages where they describe it as kind of this like beautiful, playful organism. Um, I think they have respect for its power for sure, um, and I think in in this context, it's ominous and it's eating away at their island, and they they know it can kill them the river is not the malicious actor though i guess i don't think so i think they understand its power more than anything so let's hop
0: to page 20 right on. so neither the otter nor the boatman for instance received the honor of a single mention Though ordinarily, these would have furnished discussions for the greater part of the evening. They were, of course, distinct events in such a place. So they're in the middle of nowhere. They're camping for the night. They've built their little campfire. And these really strange things have happened. The otter, the boatman. But they don't talk about it. Right. And that ties into what you were saying before Mm -hmm. about how they're lying to themselves, which is really interesting.
1: Right. And they also have this sort of strange feeling i think they're they're lying to themselves and they're lying to each other in a certain way they sort of put on this face but they each have a kind of feeling that they don't know what to do with and it's on page 22 do you want to read about that has this ever happened to you were you Where i'm like fooling myself but yeah I kind of yeah did you were you aware you were doing it Mm. <laughs> that's a tough one because of course I'm working from my memory yeah. of what happened, but my memory was formed after the events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know. It's right, like, it's like when you're in a relationship and someone betrays your trust and you maybe, should have known all along. Right. Well, or, or if one of your friends kind of reveals it to you, mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, I have this piece of information. You're like, no. And you, you could sort of confabulate a circumstance in which that person is still good. But then later on you find out it's the truth and you realize you've been fooling yourself. And there's a way in which like, like I believe that I knew it at the time and yet I know that's a memory. and I don't know. It's, right, it's a strange, it's, it's, you... a, it's a dissonant experience to go through. Well, talking about dissonant experiences, mm. the protagonist has one
0: too. Indeed. The desire to be alone had come suddenly upon me. My former dread returned in force there was a vague feeling in me i wished to face and probe to the bottom so he's he's in camp he's with the swede they're like chilling they ate some bacon i think yeah. um but the protagonist feels this drawing mm. to leave camp and go out and explore on the island at night mm-hmm. um and this is i think this is significant because um remember before i was talking about stories mm. um, and how stories like are helpful guides to behavior and also, Algernon Blackwood's way he sets up horror. I think this serves both those purposes in that he knows this is bad, yet he does it. Um, right. And that's a trope in horror we see often: is protagonists mm-hmm. making bad decisions, um, <laughs> and then their bad decisions get like hit with like, "Oh, I'm gonna let's split up, gang," and right. then you like get a xenomorph like popping out of your, your belly. Yes, as generally happens. So this is one, this is teaching, this I think this is conditioning people that read this, mm. whether Albert and Blackwood knows it or not, to like make safe camping choices. <laughs> right. This might be a stretch. Stay with me. Indeed. Continue. Um and then also it serves as like you're stuck on this train. Right. Like you as the reader are the protagonist. It takes your agency away. Right? And you're like, "Oh,
1: we're leaving camp. We're going to go see what's going on out here." Yeah. Well, it's interesting to um So what you described is that it's a plot device to help us feel afraid, but he does um, set it up in a way that's believable. So they, they have this desire to know, they have this desire to understand the unknown. And I think that's part of the age of exploration uh, zeitgeist of the time that they're, they're exploring tackling fear, right? That's who they are is that they, they want to go into these unknown areas and they want to face danger and know and become discoverers. And this is sort of the emotional side of that part of their character. Hmm. So I think it's the, the literary trope is believable because he has set them up as a particular
0: kind of person. I'm happy you brought that up because we talked about that last time. And Mm -hmm. I, I forgot about imagining these gentlemen as like having frontier mindsets, right? Like pushing the boundaries of humanity and fear is something they're willing to tackle. Exactly
1: talking about fear indeed they're actually surrounded so they go and they camp down for the night but then he hears something outside and he checks it out this is the main character there they stood in the moonlight like a vast army surrounding our camp shaking their innumerable silver spears defiantly formed all ready for an attack So he's talking about the willows there. They've camped at night and he pops out of the tent to check things out. And the willows have evolved over this whole chapter. At first, they were just described as maybe unified, maybe one being that kind of moves. And that's weird. And then they seem to be connected to his negative emotion later in the chapter, as we read. And then they start to take on this genuinely ominous quality. And here they're described more like an army of hoplites with weapons. And they're all surrounded, ready for an attack. So things have changed. And... The the nature of their campsite has changed a little bit, so why don't you tell us more about that?
0: So, I'm gonna I'm actually going camping later tonight. Ooh, what ooh. an appropriate I'm gonna be. I I guarantee I'm, it's gonna be impossible for me to not think about this while I'm camping. <laughs>
1: you should describe it
0: to Molly in <laughs> <at laughs> infinite detail. So the the author describes it as the psychology of places. For some imaginations, at least, is very vivid. For the wanderer, especially, camps have their note, either, w- either of welcome or rejection. At first, it may not always be apparent, because the busy preparations of tent and cooking prevent. But with the first pause, after supper usually, it comes and announces itself. And the note of this willow camp now became unmistakably plain to me. We were interlopers, trespassers, and we were not welcomed. So I, I can relate to this, um, by being my personal experience, like being in campsites, there's campsites like I love and like, I remember, and I would go back to, and there's certain campsites that was like, Ooh, that place was terrible. And I I don't know if it's like some relic of evolution where like my brain's just like, Oh, this place is safer or has Mm -hmm. more resources. Um, but you know, I've noticed other people when I've gone camping over the years with like random assortments of people. Mm -hmm. Some people do have rituals and stuff to make the space happy or cleanse the space. Have you ever seen Mm, this? Interesting. Uh, Not live. I was friends with a guy that would bring sage to the campsite to cleanse the campsite to create this positive feeling. Mm. So this is significant. Uh, For him, it did. (laughs) Awesome. Was he Hungarian? He was not (laughs) Hungarian. He's actually a Rastafarian. Sounds Hungarian they're they're about, the they're about the same they're about the same oh no uh, we're going to get a, if anyone listens to
1: this we're going to get a billion emails complaining <laughs> yes a billion if we get a billion emails i will consider this a great success uh so one last note about the willows before we close this up the willow the willow so he's out uh checking them out in the moonlight back to the book as i looked it was so easy to imagine they actually moved crept nearer, retreated a little, huddled together in masses, hostile, waiting for the great wind that should finally start them a running. I could have sworn their aspect changed a little and their ranks deepened and pressed more closely together. So he, at the, this is an interestingly dissonant passage because at, on the one hand, he's acknowledging them as moving Mm -hmm. beings he's like they're moving and running around and retreating and preparing Mm -hmm. for an attack on the other hand he's deluding himself that it's driven by the wind Mm -hmm. and that they're just waiting for this gust of wind to take them towards him this
0: makes complete sense though like i i've been at night and there's low light and like trees look like they're shifting or you're tired like this guy worked all day he was paddling he set up camp Mm. like this is plausible like i've experienced something similar to this
1: totally i'm not uh Yeah. It's not so much the plausibility that I find interesting. It's his psychological state of simultaneously describing them as individual moving agents with the ability to do what they want, but also as things that are just driven by the wind. So he's describing them simultaneously as living creatures with agency and inanimate objects that are just driven by the wind. We forgot the fifth character. Don't forget, we got the protagonist. We have the Swede. Yes. We have the river. We have the willows. And we have
0: the wind nailed it. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's something I really appreciate about science fiction and fantasy is how Mm -hmm. much, how much effort is put into the setting. Right. I really enjoy that. Yeah. So the protagonist is out. He's looking at all the willow, the willows. Um, and let's join him. The melancholy shrill cry of a night bird sounded overhead. And suddenly I lost my balance as the piece of bank I stood upon fell with a great splash into the river. undermined by the flood, I stepped back just in time and went on hunting for firewood again, half laughing at the odd fancies that crowded so thickly into my mind and cast their spell upon me. I recalled the Swede's remark after moving on the next day, and I was just thinking that I fully agreed with him. When I turned with a start and saw the subject of my thoughts standing immediately in front of me, he was quite close. The roar of the elements had covered his approach. Now, we were so excited about this passage when we read it. We talked about this before. This <laughs> right. is amazing. Yeah. Because I I told myself when I was going to read this, oh, just read chapter one. You don't need to read chapter two yet. Just stick with what, stick with what we're doing. But it was impossible for me, for my eyes, not to drag along to the top of the next page and find out what was going on. I was ready for the Swede to attack. Right. Cause like he's
1: knowledgeable, he knows what's going on. I think this ties into a larger theme, which you mentioned before, which is that the author presents you with something that's comforting and then he immediately takes it away. So later on in the book, we're going to hear about food, how they wake up in the morning, they have some nice meal, but then later on in the day, they realize the willows have stolen some of their food. So he presents you with this human food comfort and then he takes it away from you and in the same way i hadn't noticed this before he he presents you with this character who's a good support the swede is this kind of like strong man who's going to help you and he's very experienced but then he takes it away from you because the swede is presented as this frightening guy who like sneaks up behind you so i think that switch is interesting i hadn't noticed that before
0: yeah yeah it it was i was like oh god is the swede going to attack him what's going on um i was so worried um In general, this was, this was such a fun chapter to read. Mm. I really enjoyed this chapter. Um, there are some like minor qualities that we talked about that maybe weren't on, on point in terms of like what he describes about the setting, what he, what he chooses to include and what he doesn't choose to include his description as a people. But I, I honestly don't know if you were to like, give me a pen in like a month, if I could create this, like Mm. something this excellent.
1: Yeah. I think he has mastered a certain relationship to human inner experience, which is, it's intense for sure. So what do you, what do you, how do you see this
0: now? Because we, we've done, we did all four chapters Mm. and we've come back to do chapter one. Right. Do you have any final like thoughts now that we've revisited this topic?
1: I just i am continually impressed by how every single detail is significant. The first time I read it through, I had a sort of overall experience of this descent into fear. And the first time you read it, it's a very um, general and unified experience. But now that we've reread it several times, I'm seeing each little piece of how he gives you something comforting and then takes it away or he sets you up with a ticking time bomb so that you're constantly afraid like every single little detail is masterfully controlled and it makes me wonder how he did that like what's his process like does he write little things does he make sketches does he make a timeline like how do you manage each one of those specific details is it just a process of writing it all out and then editing it until it's clear or all those things i'm just i'm really amazed by the level of detail and control that he has in such a short piece of writing i think because
0: i I feel like we're we this is something we talk about a lot is like how does an author create fear Mm -hmm. i definitely think we should at some point try to create our own little short stories that are scary and read them yeah that sounds good um future goals right on
1: yeah so if you enjoyed this Please feel free to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on Overcast or Stitcher or any podcast providing platform. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. This is the Book Cult podcast. This was episode 1.0, first chapter of The Willows. Next week, you're going to hear episode 1.1, and that's going to be chapter two of The Willows. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks.